0: Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for being here today and for joining us from wherever you are. We're grateful that you're here. Maybe this is your everyday Sunday rhythm or place, or maybe this is your first time being here with us at Ventry. We are thankful that you are here. Hey, this was my first week to experience FADC, and wow, was it amazing. You saw the recap video. How many of you served at Fine Arts Day Camp or sent your kids here? Just raise your hand. Uh, Give it up for that. There's a ton of people all all over we had hundreds of people serving all week long, and I think they had a goal of raising over $3,000 for a local ministry partner. And I think last I heard, they raised $3,800 just in cash and even more. These are just kids raising money, which is amazing. Come on, y'all. They emptied out their piggy banks. <laughs> Do whatever to be a blessing to a local partner. We're grateful for that. Hey, next week is July 4th, and everybody's going to be in the room with us on July 4th weekend and Sunday. So your kids and all are all going to be here. And then through the month of July, Elementary and Up will also be joining us for Family Sunday. So we're excited for the uniqueness of what July is going to bring. And I love the fact that we could have sort of a, a minimal stage set up today just to remind us of the heart of worship that it's not about the lights of production, it's not about how many instruments are up here, it's about the posture of the heart singing out the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. Hey, in May of 2006, there was a fascinating experiment that took place in Manhattan on 44th Street, right in the heart of Manhattan. Two ladies by the name of Laura and Sandra, they stood there and pointed people to the glass front store with these words stenciled on the glass front. It said this, aerial dirty laundry, 100% confidential, anonymous, and free. 100% confidential, anonymous, and free. It was an invitation for people to come and take a piece of paper and write the hidden, deep, dark secrets of their life and place it in an envelope marked secret and then give it back to these ladies. And to their surprise, hundreds of people came. Everybody that day that was passing by, almost everybody came, both executives and employees, couriers and secretaries, joggers and shoppers, anyone that was passing by gladly took an empty sheet of paper, wrote out their deep, dark secrets, and gave it back to the ladies. And as Laura collected these pages, uh, her friend Sandra began to draw portraits of people, and then together, when they were out of sight, they would post both the confession and the picture. On this glass front. Here's a picture of what that day looked like. Um, they described this day like this that it was an empty glass when it started, but just within a few hours, there was not a single space empty on that glass. That people, regardless of social economic standings or which generation they were in or, or their social standing, came and just began to write secrets that they had hidden. And some were silly, like one of the pictures said, uh, my hermit hermit crab was still alive when I threw it down the trash chute. Um, But the others were weightier, like betrayals and affairs and scandalous business deals that took place. And somehow these individuals felt the freedom to write their confessions, their secret, anonymously, as long as there were no implications. What it shows is that all of us usually have something hidden in our heart. That we deal with maybe causes of guilt, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. We're in a series called Comfort in Chaos, and today we're not looking at the external chaos out there, but really speaking to an internal chaos that is caused by guilt. When we are dealing with guilt, whether it's been confessed or not, because sometimes you can put it out of the opening and we still struggle with it, it eats us up. I could imagine seasons of my life, if I was walking on 44th Street, there'd be something I need to just get off of my chest, and maybe you're thinking, if I was to walk by an experiment like that today, there'd be something that I just need to put out in the opening, because guilt can consume our joy, it can take away our hope, it can almost paralyze us, it's the chaos from the inside. King David was a wealthy, powerful, and godly king. But there were seasons in his life that he dealt with deep guilt. And in one instance, a year went on where he was paralyzed with the hidden sins and secrets of his life. In 2 Samuel, we find the story in chapters 11 and 12 of how on a hot spring day, and you if you have read the scriptures or been around church, you know the story, David saw a married woman by the name of Bathsheba and he saw her, was enticed, tempted by her, and soon he demanded what he imagined and had her bring, brought in and committed adultery with her. Soon he realized she was pregnant with his child, and it had to be his because her husband Uriah was faithfully serving David and the king, kingdom in the battlefield. So David said, uh-oh, this is not good, i got to fix this. Rather than owning up to his sin, confessing his guilt, he covered it up brought Uriah back from the battle lines and was hoping that he would, quote-unquote, reconnect with his wife, and then he could just say that, well, this child was his. But Uriah was so loyal and faithful to David, he wouldn't even go to his own house. So David realizes his plot didn't work, so he moves on to plan B. I've heard it said, the sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. So here in plot number B, or letter B, David sends Uriah back out to the battlefields. And he tells the soldiers to back away in the thickest of war. There Uriah is killed on the battle lines. It was literally murder that David constructed. So they hold a funeral for Uriah and this hero's funeral. And David sympathetically looks at Bathsheba and decides to take her, the wife of a a fallen hero, as his own wife. David was perhaps thinking, wow, that came close. I'm glad nobody found out. I can keep this a secret. I can keep this hidden in my heart. Maybe no one will ever have to know. But over the next several months, guilt hidden in the dark only grows. And this secret began to mushroom. Guilt began to take over his heart. And interestingly enough... David has not committed two sins deserving of death, but he keeps going to Sabbath services, keep offering his offerings to the Lord's sacrifices. He is part of this outward devotion of God, while inwardly he is gripped by guilt and sorrow and shame. So he writes in Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4, When I kept silence, silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. He is worshiping on the outside, but inwardly he is wasting away. So one day the prophet Nathan comes. Several months and maybe about a year after the sins were committed, Nathan comes and tells David this carefully constructed story of of injustice and treachery and theft. David is infuriated because in the story... A wealthy man takes the property, the possession of an innocent, poor man. And David says, who is this man who's committed such wickedness? Bring him in and kill him. Do what's rightfully his. And soon he realizes, I'm the unjust man. I'm the wicked man who's taken what's not mine. So David begins to grab a stack of paper. They didn't have paper, they had parchments. He begins to write what we call Psalm 51. Confession, a plea for mercy. Mercy. A broken heartedness over his sin. He pours it all out there and hiding nothing else. Calls it what it is. And he pleads with God for mercy and for grace. Psalm 51 is one of the most remarkable psalms. And across church history it's been called the psalm that's been often sung, most often prayed in churches. It's been called by one as the brightest gem in the whole book of the psalms. Spurgeon called it the matchless psalm. It's been so much across church history because Psalm 51 brings together the reality of our sin and the wonder of God's mercy, and we need both. The reality of our sin and the wonder of God's mercy, and who wouldn't be moved to read Psalm 51 because it gives voice to our pain and our guilt, often when guilt silences our words. There are so many amazing ways to unpack Psalm 51. It's so deep and so rich, and I'm grateful that it was read over you today. And you can look at Psalm 51 and unpack the pathway to forgiveness or plot out the different appropriate steps in confession. You can look at Psalm 51 and realize the gravity, the severity of sin and the damage it does to our soul, and all those are right. But today, for our purposes, I want to look at Psalm 51 from a different angle. I think Psalm 51 is more than just a confession of David's sin. It's more than just a plea for forgiveness, but there's something more happening in Psalm 51. I think Psalm 51, I want to propose to you, is a longing for purity and not just for pardon. Psalm 51 is a desperate cry for deliverance from sin and not just forgiveness from it. Psalm 51 calls for a deep cleansing of guilt and a recreation of the heart that only Jesus, the Messiah, is able to perform. This psalm is a desperate longing, a desperate pleading for Jesus to come to the history of humankind. If you're struggling with guilt, if you've got hidden things that you haven't been able to find freedom from, this psalm is a lifeline This psalm is an invitation to freedom, not because of a magic prayer or certain steps to follow or ritualistic things to observe. No, it's an invitation to freedom because it leads you directly to Jesus and the work of the cross and the person of Jesus. So let's find out how Jesus frees us from our guilt, how he cleanses us, and how he is the only answer for David's longing in Psalm 51. First of all, David teaches us here through the Holy Spirit that we appeal to the mercy, love, and compassion of God through Jesus for the cleansing of our guilt. Our only access, our only opportunity for the cleansing of our guilt, our sin, our shame, is to appeal to the love, mercy, and compassion of God through Jesus. Verse 1 of Psalm 51 reads like this, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. There's an interesting Hebrew parallelism happening here. We call it the three threes. David, first of all, identifies his sin by three words. He calls it rebellion or other translations say transgression. He calls it guilt or other translations say iniquity. And then plain out sin. They identify three various aspects of what sin does to us. Sin as a transgression, as a rebellion, is stepping over the boundary line that God has said, this is right, this is wrong. Sin as an iniquity, as guilt, is this inward perversion, the twistedness of the human heart. Sin as, uh, as sin is simply missing the mark of God. So we are stepping over God's boundary. We're missing the mark that he has set. And there is sin at work deep in our own heart. And then David asked for three things. This is the second of the three threes. He asked for God to, uh, to blot out his rebellion, to completely wash away his guilt and to cleanse him from sin. This idea of blotting out is more than just hitting backspace on a keyboard. It, it's rather this idea of, of blotting, erasing a deeply etched mark on a stone. It takes work takes openness and vulnerability. This idea of wash me is, is not just a Clorox wipe uh, on your island. It's rather the word trampling here in the Hebrew. And this idea of washing clothes by beating it against a rock and allowing it to be purged in that way. To cleanse me is literally the word unsin me. So David is saying, God, go to work on my heart. It's deep within me. Do whatever you must. I'm open. I'm available. I'm not looking for a quick fix here. Cleanse me. Wash me in such a way that even the very stain of sin and the history of sin is removed from my soul. The last of the threes is this. David appeals to three specific characteristics of God. David does not appeal to his human merit. He didn't go to say to God. God, remember, I'm I'm the giant killer who killed Goliath, the mighty hero who was great in battle. I'm the man after your own heart. He didn't go to God on the basis of his human merit. He didn't go to God on the basis of God's justice and fairness, because he knew he would be doomed. We don't need God to be just and fair to us. We need Him to be, be gracious to us. Amen? So David in this moment has got I'm appealing to you on the basis of grace and mercy. Be gracious to me according to your faithful love and abundant compassion. Abundant compassion. Be gracious. Be merciful to me. Be steadfast in love towards me. And may your compassion be abounding in me. Oftentimes in the midst of our guilt, we're believed or we're tempted to believe that God's love has tapered off. You know the imagery of God sitting on a swivel chair and when we're sinning, when we're in shame or guilt, he turns the swivel chair around, has his back on you, and is waiting for you to get it right before he can love you again. No, no, no. David is saying the only way I can even go to God is not to be motivated by fear, but rather to be motivated according to God's faithful, steadfast love. It's the mercy of God that woos me in. It's the compassion of God that draws me in. And my only appeal to go to God is mercy, steadfast love, and abundant compassion. That's why David says in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and steadfast love will follow me when? All the days of my life. Not just when I'm good, where I've hit the mark or have not transgressed against God. No, even on the days where I have not done that. On my worst of days, when I'm guilty as charged, even on those days, God's goodness, mercy is running after me. So David goes to God, appealing to his mercy and grace. And when you go to the New Testament, these three words that David appeals to God on behalf of is what is describing the work in the person of Jesus. In Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 5, it's not on the slide, but it says that God who is rich in mercy, abounding in love, raised us with Christ when we were dead in our sins. By grace, you and I have been saved. When we were still dead in our trespasses, when we were full of guilt and shame and condemnation, God raised us with Christ to new life. How? Because he was rich in mercy, abounding in love and full of grace. Romans 5 verse 8 puts it like this. But God proves his love for us in this. How is God proving his abundant compassion, faithful love, and mercy? He proves it like this. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what removes our guilt when we couldn't put forth our worth to God, when we couldn't make a case on our own accord in front of God. He, while we were still sin, sinful, while we were still buried in our trespasses, went to the cross and died for us. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, men and women are greatly terrified of the multitude of their sins, but here is comfort, or rather comfort in our chaos of guilt our God has multitude of mercies. If our sins be in number as the hairs on our head, God's mercies are as the stars of heaven. Yes, our mistakes are great, but God's mercy is greater. Yes, our guilt is deep, but God's grace goes even deeper. If you're dealing, struggling, wrestling with sin and guilt, let me tell you, What's well, an invitation for you to run to him? It's not his anger or wrath, it's his love. Steadfast. His love is flowing towards you like never before. His heart is extended to you out of compassion. His mercy is longing for you to come back. And this is the appeal that we have in front of God. Second of all, David would teach us here that as a priest, it's Jesus who cleanses our guilt. Jesus is the faithful priest who cleanses our guilt. Notice verse three. David says, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you were right when you passed sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David appeals to the mercy, love, and compassion of God, but yet at the same time, he has an acute understanding of his sin, of how short he has fallen. He's saying, this isn't just a mistake I made under the right circumstances. No, sin is deep within me. Even from the moment I was conceived, it's at work in me. And he calls sin what is sin. He doesn't make excuses for it or make light of it. He doesn't confess because he got caught or is afraid of the consequences. No, he begins to delineate. God, here is the wickedness in my own heart. And this is a good posture to take because Christ is only sweet when sin is bitter. The gospel is good when we realize the consequences of our own life when we are running our own life and being the boss of our own heart. But oh, how good it is when he cleanses us So David identifies the reality, the depth, the extent of his sin, and he begins to plead for mercy. Verse 7, David says this, Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Here's the depths of my sin, but here's my longing, God. Will you purge me, purify me with hyssop? Hyssop was a, a bunch of minty leaves, an herbal plant. Used as early as the days of the Exodus. And on the first Passover, what the children of Israel did was they took this plant, this plant of hyssop. Dipped it in blood and they painted the doorpost of their home with blood through hyssop. So that the angel of death would pass over. And ever since then, as part of the ceremonial culture in Israel. If a person was deemed unclean, the priest would take a bunch of hyssop. Dip it in water and sprinkle them with it, declaring them to be pure, symbolically before God. David, in admission of his own guilt, is saying, God, I'm the unclean person. I need a priest. I'm wicked on the inside. I need a cleansing. But as we go through the psalm, we realize David isn't simply praying for symbolically being cleansed. He wants the real stuff. He doesn't want a symbolic purification. He wants God to cleanse him in his inner being to create a new heart inside of him. So he's asking for the reality behind the symbol. He is praying for the true priest to wash him clean of his guilt and of his shame. And when you fast forward to Hebrews chapter 9, notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Now hang with me. It's pretty beautiful and complex at the same time. This is why, verse 18 of Hebrews 9, this is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats, along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people. Saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Not at all. The writer of Hebrews is saying, for centuries now, ever since Moses, you have been used to this practice Hyssop is used to sprinkle in blood or water and to cleanse you because you know that there is no forgiveness of sins. There's no cleansing without the shedding of blood. But then he gets to the reality behind the symbol in verse 13 of Hebrews 9. And the writer says this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify them for the purification of the flesh, How much more? That's the good news right there. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he cleanse our consciousness from dead works so that we can serve the living God? All these centuries, you've been practicing the symbol of purification through hyssop being dipped in blood or water to sprinkle you. But the blood of calves and goats and animals doesn't offer you forgiveness. But oh, the blood of Jesus, without spot, without stain, without blemish, offered for you. So if you trusted in the symbol, how much more in the person, in the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all and righteousness, amen. David prays for a priest to cleanse him and Jesus through his blood offers to you, to David, to me the real purging, the real purification we need. He is our priest that David longs for in Psalm 51. But not only is our priest, he's also our judge who blots out the very record of our guilt Jesus is our judge, and as a judge, he blots out our guilt record. In verse 9, David says, Turn your face, O God, away from my sin, and blot out all my guilt. This language that David uses here is a judicial language of saying, God, will you turn your face once and for all away from my guilt and blot out, or erase the very record of my guilt Will you declare me innocent once and for all? But the only problem is this could not be a reality in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Because every year they had to come, remember their sins, and offer a sacrifice. Every single year they had to replay their regret and plead for God's mercy. But this is a reality finally in the New Testament. David is pleading for God to erase his debt, to erase and blot out his transgressions. And notice how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. He, meaning Jesus, erased the certificate of death, of debt, with all its obligations that were against us and opposed to us. And he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Paul is saying, Jesus took the record of your guilt. All of the things that condemned you, that stood against you, our sins that were piled up as tall as a mountain, that we were worthy of condemnation because of, he took it all on himself and he nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross and he in that moment Answer David's prayer that God would turn his face away from our sin and blot out our guilts. And in that moment, God erased not just our sin, but the stain of our sin on the cross. Let me tell you what guilt is. Guilt is when you remember what God has already erased. You relive it. You remember it. You process it. And God is saying, I've already canceled it. I've already erased it. I've already blotted it out. And the moment you turn by faith to Jesus, as heavy and deep your guilt is, as horrible as your sins are, the past work of the cross is applied to you now. And your past, present, and future sins are erased. And you, my friend, are declared innocent, judicially, legally righteous before God Almighty. That is good news to celebrate today. As a priest, he cleanses us. And as a judge, he declares us free, forgiven, innocent. Lastly, David prays for God to create in him a new heart. And as the creator, Jesus recreates in us a new heart. A new heart. Not a refurbished one. Not a tailored one, but a new, pure heart. David recognizes his propensity towards sin and says, God, I need something new. Give me a new heart. And he pleads with God in verse 10, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart and a steadfast spirit within me. Perhaps David is anticipated the words of Ezekiel, the prophet in Ezekiel 26, where he speaks of a new covenant, the day Messiah would come. And he says, he on that day will place within his people a new heart and give them a new spirit. And this is what happens through the work of Jesus. Let's go back to or forward to Hebrews 10, verse 21. And since we have a great high priest, who is Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, with a clean heart, a new heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Here is what The writer of Hebrews is saying because of Jesus, because of him being your priest, your judge, you can approach the throne of God. Not guilty, not ashamed, but boldened by faith because your heart is made new because of the washing of blood. Your heart is made pure. It is made true. So you can come confidently and he doesn't just pardon your sin, he gives you a pure new heart. In the old covenant, our heart was propensity towards sin, it was bent towards evil. But in the new covenant, we've got a new heart, a new spiritual heart with new desires. We are made righteous in him and we are bent towards righteous things through the steadfast spirit of God at work in us. So we don't identify by our sin, it no longer has power on us, it no longer has a stronghold on us. We are forgiven and we are free and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to long for Him, to desire Him, to make decisions and honor Him because we are innocent in Jesus and righteous in Him. By the power of His Spirit, we pursue righteousness and holiness. We're given a clean heart, a new heart. He's our priest who cleanses, a judge who blots away our transgressions. And a recreator of the newness in our heart. Lastly, we learn from David that Jesus is the only and acceptable sacrifice. The only and acceptable sacrifice. David realizes the extent, the depths of his sin, which leads him to realize my religious system isn't gonna work. My sacrifices aren't good enough. I can't do what is required because what is true is this. What I need to give is more than what I have to give. So he prays in Psalm 51, verse 16. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. God, what I truly need is beyond what I can provide. If it was a sacrifice, all you needed, then I could give it. But I know that something is more required. I need something beyond a symbol, beyond a system. I need a savior. I need something beyond rituals and traditions. I need the work of Almighty God, something external to me to do something for me that would change me from the inside out. He is longing for a sacrifice other than what he can bring. Longing for an offering external to him. So let's take a look at how The writer of Hebrews says this very same thing about Jesus. Hebrews 10, verse 4 to 7 and verse 10 reads like this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, it is written about me in the scroll, talking about Jesus. I have come to do your will, God. And by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Here's how we've been sanctified. Not because of what we have done, what we could do, what we have learned. No, we have been sanctified because a body has been prepared for you. Even before David writes these words in Psalm 51, longing for purity and a clean heart and a sacrifice, a body was already prepared for him. The body where the infinite, almighty, holy God would come in the form of a human being. And he, without sin, with no sin, without blemish, that he would offer himself as the only acceptable, pleasing sacrifice for our sin, for our guilt. David longed for something more than a system. He was given a savior. And today what I'm saying to you, my friend, is this. You can lay down your guilt because it's already been taken up by Jesus. Jesus. You can lay down your sin because it's already been taken up on Jesus. He has already paid for it. And in this moment, if you're dealing with regret, the solution is not to go anonymously to something out there. Is to go directly to your priest, yes. to your judge, your Lord, who has paid the price for your sins. The Bible says in 1 John, the moment we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to wash us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So you don't have to leave this room with the guilt you came in with. You don't have to leave this room with the sin that you're dealing with. You can lay it down knowing that he has already cleansed you, forgiven you, made a way for you. He is your priest, Judge, recreator, your sacrifice. And today you could go to him because his love, mercy, compassion is extended towards you. In just a few moments, we're going to partake in communion together. I could think of no better way to celebrate the forgiveness of sins, the removal of guilt, than to break bread and drink of the cup. There was a story about a man named John Newton in history. He in the 18th century, he was a slave trader, a slave master, and a slave ship owner. He did some horrible things as he abused, lashed, tortured African men and women, brought them into slavery, and sold them into slavery. But one day, as he was on a ship ride in the middle of a storm, he thought he was going to die, so he pleaded to God for forgiveness. And he gave his life over to God that day. And over the course of the next few years, God would go to work on him. And God would bring conviction to his heart and realize his sin, the sin of racism, the sin of injustice, the sin of treating people as property. He began to think through the names and faces of the people he bought, he sold, he tortured, he abused. So much evil deep in his heart and one by one, God began to wash him. He began to cleanse him. John Newton was forgiven, cleansed, and changed by God. But he didn't just have pardon and purity. He used his story to channel it towards the ending of slavery. So he would use his story to talk about the amazing grace of God that saved him. And he would mentor men like William Wilberforce. And he used his writing and preaching and influence to talk against slavery and bring it to an end. One day as he was thinking about the grace of God that saved him, that removed his guilt and gave him a new life, he penned down these words that you have sung, that I have sung, churches all across history have sung. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. I was thinking about John Newton's story and the guilt he carried, the sin he committed, the abuse. But yet saved by grace to such an extent that the very song he penned down would be the song that slaves would sing, that a slave trader would write a song that would bring strength, confidence in the heart of slaves to lead them to freedom. This would be the anthem of the civil rights movement, a slave trader song. grace and mercy would free people in captivity in fact David said this very thing would happen when you experience the grace of God that removes guilt David said in Psalm 51 verse 14 that my tongue will rejoice and sing of your righteousness and I will teach your ways of grace and mercy to those who are far from it so God doesn't just remove your guilt he uses your past as a highlight of grace As a living example of how deep His love is for you, so that through your story, through the singing of God's righteousness and grace, others will be set free. So, we're gonna sing this song and we're gonna prepare for communion. I wanna invite you, if you're carrying guilt, to lay it down. Confess it, admit the reality of it, but go straight to Jesus. Say, Wash me, you're my priest. Blot out my sin. You are my judge. Create in me a clean heart. Renew unto me a steadfast spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that you are my sacrifice. I'm well pleased. You are well pleased because of Jesus. Let's sing this. Let's get ready for communion. David prayed, God, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. The good news is because of the body of Jesus and the Spirit of God, we never have to be away from his spirit, his presence. He is forever ours. What a joy that through the broken body of Jesus we are made whole all of our broken pieces that we can never put together, find meaning, purpose, healing through his broken body. He was beaten, abused, made unrecognizable. The cross was so brutal because our sins were that deep. Our guilt was that heavy, but he took it all. Thank you, Father, for the body of Jesus prepared for us from eternity past, broken for us so that we might be made whole. Let's take the bread. In the same manner Jesus took the cup, this is my blood shed for you, the cup of the new covenant. flows from the highest mountain to the lowest valley cleansing the deepest stain of sin washes you and cleanses you And today if you need salvation here is the blood of Jesus available for you to purify you to cleanse you thank you for the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word over our life than our past our failures and our sin oh the blood that washes us both our sin and its stain and its history. David's longing to be cleansed, Jesus sacrifice that cleanses. Thank you for the blood. Let's take of the cup. Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of the cross. For the blood of Jesus, the body of Christ. Broken for us, shed for us, so that we could be cleansed of guilt, that we could be brought into a fellowship with God forever. And soon one day, we will sit around the throne of God, and you will lead us so we anticipate greatly that day where we could forever in eternity see the highlight of your grace applied on our life through the finished work of the cross. Oh, how we long for you to return. So come, Lord Jesus, come. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name, we pray, amen. Come on, if you've experienced the freedom of Jesus through his blood, will you put your hands together? Thank you so much, church family, for being with us today and engaging in worship and in communion with us. We can't see you back next week. I wanna tell you, maybe you're here today and this message, this topic has brought something to the memory and you just need to linger a few moments here. You'll feel free to do that. Stay where you are. Our elders are here. Our pastors are here. If you just need prayer, find one of us. Or go to the prayer room. Maybe there are some things that you're still dealing with. And we want to invite you to experience the freedom of Jesus before you leave today. Maybe you need to make a step in the direction of following Jesus and saying yes. To His grace, we would love to help you do that. And if you're watching, you can email us at pastorsbentry.org at or just type in the chat box there. We would love to connect with you. If you're in this room, just meet us in our prayer room. Our next step team is ready to walk with you. But if you just need to linger a little bit and experience God's grace afresh today, we invite you to do so. But we love you, we thank you. You're dismissed. We'll see you soon.